Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. So let's turn to John 18. And we'll pick up at verse 28. Read through the end of the chapter. John 18, 28 through 40. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord, and you should receive it as such. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that it would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews. So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the eternal Son of God, was arrested late at night on a Thursday. He was before the thug Annas, the Mafia Don, that former high priest who who pulled the strings behind the scenes in Jerusalem. And then, from Annas, he went before the current actual high priest, Caiaphas. Meanwhile, sadly, his disciple Peter has been grappling with himself and his own sin and denying that he was Jesus' disciple at all. And now, Jesus is dragged to yet another authority. Son of God is being is being passed around from earthly authority to earthly authority. The very Son of God, the one who who created all things and spoke the world into existence, is now being trotted before, before earthly authorities. These puny, tiny, tiny, dusty authorities. Mere men. And they are all conspiring together to put this blaspheming, rabble-rouser to death. That's their view of him. He's just a blaspheming, rabble-rousing young man. 
He had announced, though, right, you remember, Jesus had announced that he was the Messiah. And they mistook that announcement as Jesus blaspheming. And they missed it to their own condemnation, right? After Caiaphas and his examination, and in the other three Gospels, it's clear that um, between Caiaphas and where we go next to the Praetorium, the Sanhedrin interviews Jesus and questions him, right? So after Caiaphas, though, and that examination with the Sanhedrin, Jesus is taken to the Praetorium. Matthew 27 says this, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So they led him to the praetorium, our text says. What's, what's the praetorium? In general, uh, a praetorium is the residence of a Roman governor. In war, the general's tent is the praetorium. It's called the praetorium. The praetor was the name of the Roman official. So where he was stationed, where that praetor was stationed and where he was resided was therefore the praetorium. Right above the praetor in rank was the consul. One of the two chief magistrates in the Roman Empire. So significant power for a praetor, not a consul though. In the case of our text, we learn who was the praetor in Jerusalem. It was the man, Pontius Pilate. It's a man whose name we say every time we confess the creed. A man who, whose name is said around the world every Sunday, everywhere, that confesses the creed. And so the Praetorium was a large palace. It had been constructed by Herod the Great, right, who you may know had rebuilt the second temple or built the temple known as the second temple. He died after the birth of Christ. He was the one who ordered the murder of the children under the age of two, right? He had built this, this building. Um, he also built, uh, so he did the temple he reconstructed the temple. The Wailing Wall apparently is still a part of the second temple that was constructed, or it's assumed so. Um, but he built this palace, and in it lived the Roman praetor, or governor, Pontius Pilate. What else do we know about Pontius Pilate? Well, we have a couple first century historians who mention Pontius Pilate. Philo does, but also Josephus, uh, these, these historians that you may have heard of. Josephus, writing in the generation immediately following Christ during the first century, relates some incidents which took place in Jerusalem under Pilate. He writes this, Pilate being sent by Tiberius as procurator, procurator to Judea, introduced into Jerusalem by night and undercover the effigies of Caesar, which are called standards. This proceeding, when day broke, aroused immense excitement among the Jews. Those on the spot were in consternation, considering their laws to have been trampled underfoot, as those laws permit no image to be erected in the city, while the indignation of the townspeople stirred the country folk, who flocked together in crowds, hastening after, Pil hastening after Pilate to Caesarea. The Jews implored him to remove the standards from Jerusalem, and to uphold the laws of their ancestors. No images, right? Don't put these effigies of Caesar up. We will not bow to them. When Pilate refused to remove them, they fell prostrate around his house and for five whole days and nights remained motionless in that position. On the ensuing day, Pilate took his seat on his tribunal in the great stadium and summoned the multitude with the apparent intention of answering them, gave the arranged signal to his armed soldiers to surround the Jews. Finding themselves in a ring of troops, three deep, the Jews were struck dumb at this unexpected sight. 
Pilate, after threatening to cut them down if they refused to admit Caesar's images, signaled to the soldiers to draw their swords. Thereupon the Jews, as by concerted action, flung themselves in a body on the ground, extended their necks, and exclaimed that they were ready rather to die than to transgress the law. Overcome with astonishment at such intense religious zeal, Pilate gave orders for the immediate removal of the standards from Jerusalem. Josephus also says this, he spent money from the sacred treasury, not his money, right? He spent money from the sacred treasury in the construction of an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem, intercepting the source of the stream at a distance of 200 furlongs. The Jews did not acquiesce in the operations that this involved, and tens of thousands of men assembled and cried out against him, bidding him relinquish his promotion of such designs. Some too even hurled insults and abuse of the sort that a throng will commonly engage in. He thereupon ordered a large number of soldiers to be dressed in Jewish garments under which they carried clubs. And he sent them off this way and that, thus surrounding the Jews, whom he ordered to withdraw. When the Jews were in full torrent of abuse, he gave his soldiers the prearranged signal. They, however, inflicted much harder blows than Pilate had ordered, punishing alike both those who were riding and those who were not. But the Jews showed no faint-heartedness, and so caught unarmed as they were by men delivering a prepared attack. Many of them actually were slain on the spot, while some withdrew disabled by blows, thus ending the uprising. Now, whether this is typical of Pilate or simply typical of Roman government is a question, right? But political disorder, any kind of disorder which could lead to political disorder, they did not like, okay? Pilate was undoubtedly an ambitious man. He's already praetor in Judea, right? He's an ambitious man. He's an ambitious Roman. That would be seen as a virtue, right? It's not only we would hope in our society, but certainly in Roman society, he had ambition, right? And he wasn't afraid to use intimidation and violence to quell uprisings. He had a sword, and he used that sword. Why did the chief priests and elders of the Jews have Jesus taken to him, to Pilate? It's very simple. Because the Jews didn't have the right under Roman occupation to execute criminals. That's why they take him to Pilate. They don't, have the, they don't have capital punishment, but the Romans do, and Pilate does. They had to go to the Romans if they wanted to get the job done right. They had determined he needed to die. They couldn't do it judicially, and so they go to someone who can do it supposedly judicially. So off to Pilate they go. The man who had been violent toward them might now be willing to be violent against the Son of God. And so we'll be friends with him for now if he'll do us, if he'll do us uh, a favor. The pre chief priests and elders would do their best to convince Pilate that he had good political reasons to get rid of Ju Jesus. Okay. Now notice in our text this, and they... Speaking of the high priests and the other elders of Jerusalem, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Okay, now let that sink in. <laughs> oh, man. This is our first lesson today. It's the lesson of hypocrisy, right? Oh, the exceeding righteousness of the Jewish elders, right? The exceeding righteousness of the Jewish elders who want to keep the Passover and won't go in amongst these Gentiles in order to get defiled. Here they are having determined to put Jesus to death without any evidence, right? 
as to his crimes, and they have a, a very scrupulous conscience when it comes to not entering into the presence of Gentiles. Scrupulous conscience so that they might be clean, so they can continue celebrating. The Passover has already begun. They're to continue celebrating the Passover. They are seeing red, so to speak and yet are very careful that they don't defile themselves in the presence of unclean Gentiles. They are committing murder. They are actively in the process of committing murder, and they are careful to not break the rules and miss out on the Passover, that celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from the Egyptians when the firstborn sons were killed by the Lord. And they are careful about ceremonial cleanness while they are committing murder. Killing an innocent man at that. And more than that, killing the very Son of God. But we can't go into the gent. We can't. Pilate, you're going to have to come to us. We, you know, we can't go amongst you. We're clean. I mean, it's awful, isn't it? How hypocritical. Ryle says this on this verse. He says, the sentence is an extraordinary example of the false scrupulosity of conscience, which a wicked man may keep up about forms and ceremonies and trifling externals in religion at the very time when he is deliberately committing some gross and enormous sin. Now, what examples can I think of that might help us bring this home? Well, here's one. There are many people who work very hard to establish the right of a woman to kill her unborn child, who also work very hard to criminalize the destruction of a bald eagle's nest. Right? It's just such wicked and horrible hypocrisy. They are scrupulous when it comes to animals and trees and amoeba, right? But reckless and bloodthirsty when it comes to man, the only creature created in the image of God. And so it's very clear that their hatred of God is what motivates them to attack the image of God in man. And protect that which has no image. So many are religious and careful and have rigid rules when it comes to respecting someone's bodily autonomy and their corresponding pronouns. And then advocates of completely removing bodily autonomy of voiceless vulnerable babies in the womb. Oh my. What damnable hypocrisy. The hypocrisy exhibited by the chief priests in Jerusalem at this juncture is a common condition of man, though. We all, dear brothers and sisters, can be very scrupulous about some things while giving ourselves a pass on what is open sin, open rebellion. How many of us have been in this situation, men? You've sinned by lusting after other women on your computer, and even before you've thought to repent or even before you feel remorse, you've gotten in arguments about the utter wickedness and horror of sodomy on Facebook. You're a hypocrite. We are hypocrites when we do that. You're very careful to make sure people know that you abhor sexual perversion while you're giving yourself to it. Okay? Perhaps that's often how we attempt to deal with our 
defiled consciences. We show great zeal to denounce evil on our social media pages and build up our stock and our, our, our image in other people's eyes so that we can feel better about what we deem to be our lesser private evils. Oof. We crow like the Pharisee did before the publican, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We crow like that. We denounce others, and meanwhile, we have all kinds of secret sins. We are prone, brothers and sisters, aren't we, to exaggerate our holiness in one um, insignificant or even worthless area while we are defiling ourselves in another important and costly area. It's called self-protection. It's deflection. It's It's a lot of things. But it is hypocrisy. We don't want to be outed, and so we make a great show of zeal of our holiness before others. We, th- we you know... We like to throw our friends and our spouses and our parents off the scent. You know what that is. I mean, in a sense, it's works righteousness where we hyperinflate the value of little works in the face of gross violations of God's law. Right? That's what it is. That is the pharisaical religion. It's hypocrisy based on little works and neglecting the big ones. That's all it is. It's Pharisees. And this is precisely what Jesus said about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, you should have tithed your dill, mint, and cumin, but not not as a substitute for faith and righteousness and mercy. And then, of course, the following declaration of our Lord comes to mind. Now you, Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Robbery and wickedness on the inside. Calvin says, they do not consider that they carry more pollution within their hearts than they can contract by entering any place, however profane, of those men staying out of the praetorium. Now this, again, warning mode here, thinking through myself, our church, where we're at. This hypocrisy is an error that many homeschooling families make. They think that by removing their children from the world that they will have holy children. And anybody who's actually homeschooled knows how ridiculous that is. But some people believe that. And that's what's motivating them to homeschool, right? They think that by removing their children from the world that they will have holy children. And to some extent, Right? That's true. Bad company corrupts good morals. I get it. There are protections you should put in place. But removing your children from those influences does not remove the moral corruption of their own hearts. They're corrupt. We are corrupt. They, like all of us, were born with a fallen nature, a sinful nature, a corrupt nature, inherited by virtue of their connection with our first father, Adam. There is only one way, therefore, to deal with that sin within their hearts and with your homes, and that is to plunge it beneath the blood of Christ and receive an alien righteousness by faith. That's their only hope. That's your only hope, right? That's That's our only hope. And so while you may want to remove your children from certain influences, that's tithing your mint, dill, and cumin, you must also remember the sin that they carry about in their flesh, in their hearts, in their minds, and point them toward Jesus Christ. Simply that. Do not be surprised, mothers, when your children sin. Okay, first, you've modeled it for them. 
And second, they're born with a corrupt heart. Third, they need, truly need forgiveness. And that does not come by your works, but only by faith. Okay? So one, another application of this text. Now, moving on. It's early, it's early in the morning on Friday. It's perhaps 8 or 9 in the morning at this point. And Pilate comes out and asks the Jews who brought Jesus in, what's going on? He specifically wanted to know what the charge was. What's the charge here, right? What accusation had the, those scribes and Pharisees and chief priests? Um, you know, what, what, what had kept them up all night? deliberating this, and what had led to them bringing Jesus to him. I mean, it's a good, just place for him to start. In fact, it was required by Roman law. He had to start there. A judge could not condemn anyone without, at the very least, hearing the charge against him. There had to be a charge, right? He seems to be following suit, but there are complexities here. Jesus wasn't a Roman, and the Jews have their own laws. They respond but do not answer his question. They, they sound, in, in response to his question, right? they sound rude and impertinent. And they are being rude and impertinent with him. right? They are not showing um, the proper respect. They merely assert that he's an evildoer. We wouldn't bring him to you if he hadn't done evil. That's not an answer to his question. Right? That's not a charge. That's like his, his state. It's a state of being. It's not the actual charge. Um, it's, it, you know, it's their assessment of his state of being. And so they merely assert that he was an evildoer and they wouldn't have brought him to Pilate if he were not. Actually, what they are doing is arguing for their own authority. That Pilate would even ask them what the charge is is an affront to their authority that they assume that they have, Right? Now, Pilate, Pilate had undoubtedly heard about Jesus. How could he have not heard about Jesus in the previous three years? In the previous however many years. But for three years, there had been a constant buzz in Jerusalem, and the Jews have been in a tizzy. And certainly the Jewish leaders have been trying to figure out what to do. Pilate would have been very sensitive to such things, right? He had to keep the peace. Indeed, he must, have, he must have been part of the order to send out troops, a whole cohort of troops, that very night to arrest Jesus. He had to have been involved in that somehow, right? Certainly, he would have at least been informed that, okay, we've got a thousand men on the move to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. He would know. From this point on, what we'll see from Pilate is him trying his hardest to distance himself from making a judgment about Jesus. He is going to try to walk back from this and walk out of this and not do anything about it. That is both, in a sense, virtuous and horribly cowardly. It's terrible. You know, we do know from the other Gospels that uh, Matthew and Luke, that Pilate knew that they had delivered to G um, Jesus to him because of envy. He knew that. He knew that these guys were envious. So he does have questions about their motives this evening. And in fact, we know this again. His wife would eventually send him a message during this trial and say, have nothing to do with this man. Don't do anything with this man. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, she said, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Even his wife is sending him notes saying, don't do it. He first tries to hand Jesus back to the Jews so they can make their own judgment. He does not want to get involved or he just does not want to have the responsibility of, of this decision. So he says, Take them yourselves, judge them according to your law. 
Pilate is going to show us in the coming words that he lacks moral courage. He is warned by his wife. He is willing to question their motives. He tries to work the system. He even declares that Jesus is innocent. But in the end, he is not willing to act against the will of the throng of Jews crying out for Jesus' crucifixion. He will not. He will not use moral courage in the face of the throng. He's a thorough pragmatist. He is an unprincipled coward. In fact, forever commemorated as an unprincipled coward in the creeds we confess, right? And so the Jews respond to Pilate's suggestion. It reveals their hearts and puts Pilate in a serious bind. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Pilate must act now because apparently he's dealing with a capital case. And he is the only one with the power to make the judgment in such a case. Even still, he'd make three more attempts to deflect away from making this judgment. Now, our Savior knew what was coming. He was not unaware that this sham trial would lead to his death. Our passage points this out right at the point the Jews say they cannot put him to death. What they say was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Matthew 20 says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is way before the trial. Jesus had said this to his apostles. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Jesus knew all of this. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. It seems then that Pilate, scheming to get out of this situation, has left the praetorium. He leaves, and then what takes place until verse 38 is a private interview between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate gets out of the sight of everybody, takes Jesus into a room, and and questions him privately. And um, he brings Jesus before him. And he asks him four provocative questions. Are you the king of the Jew? Are you the king of the Jews? What have you done? So you are a king, and what is truth? Oh man. So much there. The first question, Jesus does not answer, but he questions what motivated Pilate to ask him that question. Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And so I think Pilate is fearful. He knows the history of Israel. He knows that there were great kings that once ruled this realm, right? And he's in charge now. He knows, he knows something of the history of the kings of Israel. He's, he's fearful. And undoubtedly, there have been rumors that a king was going to arise or had already arisen. That was the Jewish hope. Right? The Jews, several years earlier, had attempted even to make Jesus king. You remember that. Earlier in John, we read about it. They attempted to make Jesus king, but Jesus eluded them, would not have it. And of course, you and I know that Jesus is a king. <laughs> a king of an eternal kingdom. And a kingdom that is not of this world. To Pilate, this man before him, clothed in rags, is not very kingly. And he just does not appear to be a king. You know, not like any of the kings we would see in those, those renditions of the Lord of the Rings. Well, that's not true. I mean, I guess it would be a Varagorn. He, uh, he was clothed in rags most of the time. But he's, he doesn't appear kingly, right? And yet, though his appearance is common, his works had been remarkable in Jerusalem. His works had been remarkable. That Jesus was a king seems to be on the forefront of Pilate's mind, especially after his eventual sentence of death when Pilate put this inflammatory inscription on the cross, right? Do you remember what Pilate did? He had put on the cross Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So what did Pilate want to find out here? 
What was leading Pilate to ask these questions about kingship? I think he was fearful of his own power, as a Roman might want to be, and wanted to figure out just what kind of king Jesus thought himself to be, right? But to return to the first answer of Jesus, I think Jesus is trying to prick the conscience of Pilate, right? He's essentially saying, have you ever heard anything from me that would make you believe I want to shed blood and overthrow the rule of Rome? Have you ever heard anything like that? That I want to, I like, um, get an army together and overtake Rome? Have you ever heard anything like that? The answer to that is a resounding no. Jesus had resisted such an approach even just hours earlier when he told Peter to put the sword back into the sheath. He had stated that he had the power, you know, he, he there stated that he had the power to overtake Rome. Don't you think that I could bring 12 legions of angels here and wipe out all of this? But that, that was not the way it was to fall out. Jesus had cried in the streets of Jerusalem and in regions surrounding her that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He had announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He had gone everywhere and announced that. And it would be a, a good assumption that he was the king of that kingdom. But always combined, what was always combined with Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of heaven was at hand? What's always combined with it? Therefore, gird on your swords and let's take a stab at the Romans. No, it's, it's repent. It's just repent. Always combined with the announcement that the kingdom of heaven was at hand was therefore, you know, um, repent. Always accompanying the announcement was the call to repent of their sins, to have a righteousness that surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees, that the kingdom of heaven belonged to those who were persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that the poor in spirit received the kingdom of heaven. That kind of kingdom makes no sense to a Roman governor who has his sights set only on the world. Okay, that the kingdom of Christ would be characterized by repentance and holiness makes little sense to a Roman praetor who had worldly ambitions. It would not have been virtuous for Pilate not to have worldly ambitions. But, and this is important, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not share those ambitions. Jesus did not share the ambitions to have a worldly kingdom. He was not interested in ruling this square inch of his world. He was already king of kings and lord of lords, and his kingdom was and is vastly more important than a piece of land in the Middle East. It's insignificant Jesus' question, Pilate responds by getting defensive. He's a Roman, and he will not be accused of paying any attention to what this strangely zealous Jewish people say about life and religion. Am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew, am I? He says, your own nation, your chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? He's again trying to deflect. He may have fears, but he is not going to pay too much attention to the superstitions of a superstitious people. He cares enough to keep the peace, but he does not care enough to take a careful interest in the details of their religion. He wants simply to know what Jesus has done to get the chief priest so stirred up. Oh, those magi some 30 years earlier had asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But that was a myth, Pilate probably thought. Jesus then seems to answer the first question. If you look at your text, he seems to answer the first question that was asked. Um, are you the king of the Jews? Now, if he had answered a simple yes to this question, yes, Pilate would have taken him to be a seditious revolutionary. 
right? That was the Jewish hope. The kings come back, they take up the sword, they get rid of the Romans. So if Jesus had not nuanced it and said yes, then he would have taken him as a seditious revolutionary. If he says no, meaning he didn't want political power, his answer would have misled Pilate because in a real sense he was a king and he was the king of the Jews. So when he answers, he must give an explanation that is nuanced and properly defines the nature of his kingship and his kingdom. Right? That's what we get next. Yes, I'm a king, but let me explain it to you. That's what he's doing. He has to distance himself from the accusations of the Jews who are telling Pilate that he was a politically motivated seditionist and should therefore be killed. He also has to point toward a theological kingship that he is the Messiah, the very thing the Jews would not accept. So he says, stick with me here. Please, people are tired this morning. Get some coffee right now if you need it. I've still got a lot of stuff to go through. He has to point toward this. So he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And really, that, that translation, that last phrase, it's not parallel to my kingdom is not of this world. Really there he says, my kingdom is not of this, this here stuff. That's really what he says. My kingdom is not of here. Now, what are we to make of these words that we all know and remember? First thing to notice is that Jesus is answering yes to Pilate's question. He has a kingdom and therefore he is a king. But Pilate, fret not. Um, he's like, Pilate, fret not. My kingdom is not of this world. He's putting Pilate in a sense at ease. My kingdom is not of this world. Right? My men will not be causing trouble for you. We're not about to pick up the sword. We're not going to do that. That is not the call of the day. Right? They are not a militia. My men are not forming a militia. Right? And then that last phrase, notice that he doesn't say the same thing about his kingdom not being of the world. He says, my kingdom is not from here. Now, there is so much here in these this passage, dear brothers and sisters, Christ's kingdom, let me put it this way, Christ's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Am I allowed to say that? Christ's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world because the kingdoms of this world are defended and propped up and cling, cling to weapons and money for their existence. That's what keeps our countries, our nations, the nations of the world in existence. Guns and money. It is a kingdom, Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that originates in heaven. It is a spiritual kingdom that precedes and follows after all the kingdoms of the world. It is an eternal kingdom and not temporal. It is not like the Roman kingdom, which no longer exists. It is a kingdom that is founded upon the word of God and the power of the spirit, not the power of the sword and the strength of, of the exchange rate. Right? It is a kingdom occupied by those born of God, not those born of America or of Zambia or of Australia. It is an unshakable kingdom that will last well beyond the kingdoms of this world. The citizens of that kingdom will gladly say they are citizens of that kingdom before they say they are citizens of any country of this world. I belong to Christ. That's a statement of our citizenship. The weight and strength of Christ's kingdom is not destabilized by the rise and fall of any puny nation that's just a drop in the bucket. 
Now, I've got a long Calvin quote here, but I just, I think I'm going to have mercy on you and myself. But what Calvin says is, um, again, he makes, he makes a careful distinction between spiritual governments and, and civil governments. And then he says, you know, one of the things that this passage makes us question is, is it right for the state to defend the church? And he says, yeah, it's right. If the magistrate is doing his job at a certain point, he should want to protect the peace of the church. That would be a righteous magistrate. So he, he concedes that, you know, there can be that. But then he concludes with this one phrase that I, I, I just want, I want you to hear. He says, The kingdom of Christ is strengthened more by the blood of the martyrs than by the aid of arms. Do you get what he's saying there? The the the. The kingdom of Christ is strengthened more by the blood of the martyrs than by the aid of arms. In other words, the church is always going to lose to win. The victory of the church will be cleverly disguised as a failure all through the ages. And then Jesus will come back and put everything right. Okay? Right? And so, um, one last application, then we're done. So many Christians today are trying to find their place in this world. Right? We, we, we as the church and as citizens of Christ's kingdom are trying to find our place in the world. Jesus' words here teach us about our place in this world and our place in the midst of temporal kingdoms, nations, and governments. Now, some have determined that the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom means we should remove ourselves from any of the cultural battles going on around us, right? We needn't fight abortion. We needn't fight sexual perversion. We needn't be... uh, we needn't seek to be elected to off, uh, um, government offices. We, we need not call the, the rulers to righteous ruling. And if you're in that camp, you couldn't care less that there is righteousness in government, a righteousness that would allow the church to exist and prop, prosper. That's the radical two kingdom side of things. On the other hand, some have determined that the nature of Christ's kingdom is not spiritual at all, and that to call it such is declare that Christ is not a king. They think that the governments of the world should enforce Christianity and have a hand in the stewardship of the churches, maybe a hand even in the delivery of the sacraments. Right? They clamor for political power and propose that it is through statecraft, the Christianizing of the civil government, that the kingdom of Christ will be realized on the earth. That's radical one-kingdomism. I think they're both wrong. And terribly wrong. Both are terribly wrong. I believe our passage works against each of those positions. We believe that Christ's kingdom is spiritual and that the governments of this world ought to rule righteously, but not in a way that the state becomes the church or the church becomes the state. God has set up in this world two ministers, the church and the state. The two ministers have different roles, but some seek to enclose Christ's kingdom within the elements of the world. That is a scandal because of the passage we've been focusing on today. My kingdom is not of this world. We can argue about how far each of the two kingdoms should go, but what we can't do is cling to a theology that either casts the church out of the world or that conflates the church and the state. Okay? The nature of Christ's kingdom is spiritual. Christ is a king, and his interest is in that kingdom. He does not need to rule the temporal kingdoms of the world because his kingdom is more substantial and more lasting, right? Christ before Pilate does not clamor for, you know, or or abolish Rome's kingdom. Rome, drop in the bucket. 
And Pilate does not clamor for or attempt to abolish Christ's kingdom. If anything, he doesn't understand it, and in the end, he works against it. Now there's, I'll, I'll end here. It's my second conclusion. Be satisfied with the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, be satisfied with that. Um, be satisfied with the temporal nature of the kingdoms of the world, the state, and the government. Realize that both of those authorities are ministers of Christ that ought to be set on God's glory and that they serve different purposes, that they are composed of different citizens, that one day the consummation of Christ's kingdom at his return will make the kingdoms of the world superfluous, unnecessary, even impossible. They will be gone. And so are you a citizen of that kingdom? That glorious and everlasting and perfectly protected kingdom. It's protected by the omnipotence of a slain lamb. Are you a member of that kingdom? Well, believe in Christ and find rest for your souls in his everlasting kingdom that is not of this world. Amen? Wait, one more point. No. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us minds that focus on it and are able to hear the word preached and receive the truth that you want to have lodged in our hearts and minds. Lord, we thank you that Christ is our king. We thank you that he rules. We thank you that his kingdom is eternal, that it is spiritual, that it is impenetrable, that it is and will be our eternal resting place. Fill our hearts with joy to be there in that kingdom, enjoying the eternal Sabbath that reigns there. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.